0: Welcome to this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. I am Stuart Blythe, a member of the Faculty at ADC and the Dean of Chapel. Here, you'll get a chance to hear perceptive and powerful sermons, which were delivered by staff, faculty, students, alumni and guests as part of our weekly Wednesday Chapel services. One early cloudy morning when I was 46, writes Sarah Miles, I walked into a church, ate a piece of bread and sipped some wine, a routine Sunday activity that tens of millions of Americans do routinely. uh, And except until that moment, for me, I lived a thoroughly secular life at best indifferent to religion, more often appalled by its fundamentalist crusades. This was my first communion, and it changed everything. This is the beginning of Miles's spiritual memoir, an autobiography of sorts, but how a left-wing journalist, a restaurant cook, food lover, lover person that grew up in a completely irreligious life, one day walking down the street in San Francisco, felt drawn to St. Gregory of Nyssa's nice, so Episcopal Church on a Sunday morning. And this church had a unique way of practicing communion, The whole sanctuary was in a circle. I guess we're halfway there. Uh, (laughs) And they would just invite anybody up to come. And she felt called to partake. And she describes this moment as an event of inexplicable spiritual epiphany. She ate. And she said, as she did, she realized for the first time, God loved her. God was with her. She was eating with God because it was God who invited her to the table. And with some awkward, intense moments, she informed her family and friends that she was now a Christian. And she didn't quite understand all that that meant, but she knew she was captivated by a reality she needed to pursue. As part of this, she felt called to serve her community with her passion for food. And so she opened up St. Gregory's Food Pantry, an entirely free, unconditional source of food for anybody who came, a pantry that came to feed thousands of the city's poor, on a weekly basis. This ministry was an act that she saw as one saying with communion. God meets us in the meal of bread and wine. God meets our needs for forgiveness and love. And so we meet each other's needs for food, for provision, for care, inviting others in. This is what communion, the thing that we're going to practice today to kick off the semester, is all about. You see, every time we do communion, We implicitly answer a question, maybe a set of questions. We communicate a message. It's not just sipping juice. It's not just eating a tiny chunk of bread. Why is that? I'm gonna say something really profound here. Because we need to eat. Mm -hmm. We need to eat in order to live. If you haven't figured that out by now, I think everybody has you can follow me on social media for more life hacks. <laughs> <laughs> you like that? Hey, I like that. <laughs> it also means who you eat with is who you live with. Whether you think of the holidays, getting together with family and friends, it always seems to involve food. Or doing something like we're going to do after this, upstairs and have a meal together. Who you eat with is who you have life with. And so we ask implicit questions every time we take communion. Who can eat? Who can we eat with? Who can eat with us? But it's really a bigger question living ahead. What does God eat with? Or simply, who is God with? Theologians have offered all sorts of qualifications to this. It's kind of a a professional hazard of ours. We theologians love complicated answers. I'm sure you've caught on by now. But at the end of the day, it comes to something like this. The answer might just be very, very simple. Who does Jesus eat with? It's so simple you could almost put it on a bracelet if you were alive during that era (laughs) of church ministry. I had one of those bracelets. Well, for this sermon, I read a couple of scriptures. You got that. <laughs> Somebody gets my jokes. For this sermon, I chose three scriptures. Three scriptures to show a pattern that Jesus models. Who does Jesus choose to eat with? Well, Jesus has kind of a track record, you might say, through the synoptic gospels of radical inclusion and subversive solidarity. Let's just reflect on these scriptures quickly. The stories I think we've all heard. The first is that Jesus feeds the 5,000. Many of us heard this story before, but we just don't think about it some, in certain ways. Well, let me just tease out a few details. First, the people are hungry, and Jesus simply has compassion on them. It goes to say that they, it mentions they're like sheep without a shepherd, a title only God has in Zechariah. A subtle hint Mark drops alluding to who Jesus actually is. And how does the shepherd Jesus feed his sheep? He could have shamed them for not being prepared. He could have decided right then and there who was actually a disciple and who was a phony. He could have created an elaborate system of who was deserving and who was maybe a freeloader. But he didn't. He simply had compassion on them. Second, it says that the disciples looked around and apparently someone volunteered five loaves and two fish. John's Gospels is the only one that actually mentioned that it was a boy who volunteered that food. This miracle began with somebody willing to share. God takes our willingness, the smallest gifts we bring, and he can multiply them. I have a story at the end, so stay tuned about that. Third, Bread and fish are offered, and some have used that to say, see, this isn't actually talking about communion. Those two are different. However, uh, if you look at my slide, that's a picture of early Christians partaking the Lord's Supper in catacombs. Notice, and maybe you no, can start to see it, it's a little blurry. There's loaves as well as fish are depicted. This indicates to us that early Christians certainly saw this story as speaking about communion. This story reflects A tradition of the early church where bread, wine, and fish also were used. Anybody notice who's leading communion too, by the way? At the head of the table? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you're going to feel bad. It's a woman. (laughs) A woman is leading communion. Interesting. Notice that children are around this table. Hmm. That's a sermon for another time. The story... Um, and so in, um, here I'm getting lost here. For this passage goes out and says that Jesus thanked God, blessed, and broke the bread. So the words used here are similar to the words Jesus used in the Last Supper, blessing and breaking. What he's doing here is what, is what he's doing there. He is also, it's also the same phrase used to how the disciples in Acts 2, met and broke bread, and they shared what they had in common. It's also the same phrase in Acts 27, when Paul is lost at sea with other prisoners, and they're lost in the storm, and finally the storm breaks, they're hungry, and so it says he blessed and broke and ate with them, celebrating God's faithfulness. But God, what Jesus is doing here is like what the apostles are doing there. This is kind of like that. Jesus is setting a pattern. The story ends by pointing out that people ate and were filled. In fact, they had so much left over, they had 12 baskets. why 12. Lots of speculation there, but I think Jesus is just being cheeky. The disciples wanted to send people away. The <laughs> disciples didn't believe that the hungry could be fed. It'll just cost too much. It just always costs too much. We hear that familiar skepticism. However, Jesus... Not only feeds everybody, he has stuff left over, a basket for every disciple, as if to say, told you. <laughs> Jesus does that a lot, doesn't he? The second story is about Jesus calling Matthew, eating with sinners and tax collectors. The religious leaders get upset. Notice a few things here. First, the story begins with Jesus calling Matthew, a tax collector. Now, uh, some of you know, I pastored First Baptist Church of Sudbury. Um, we had a retired accountant for the CRA as our uh, treasurer. And every time we read this passage, we had to do the, you know, necessary joke. See, God even loves Carl, the tax collector in our church. <laughs> Which Carl always responded, what does the Bible got against tax collectors? You yeah, have that kind of voice. <laughs> it's an honest profession. Well, there's a little bit different profession in the ancient world, I'm sure you know. The Roman occupation hired these men to extort money out of people. They were regarded as traitors to their people, willing to extort and intimidate. And Jesus makes a point of calling this person to be his disciple. Jesus is making a statement, as he often does. It doesn't matter who you are. Jesus loves you. Jesus has a plan for you. Jesus has a new way of life if you're daring enough to take it up. And this blows Matthew away so much so, he invites a bunch of his friends to dinner to eat with Jesus. The story makes a point of saying there are tax collectors and known sinners, as well as disciples. So there are people who, had a, who are committed to following Jesus there, but then there are maybe those who are just curious, not sure, maybe just hungry. Both are invited and he eats with both. Eating for Jews is something deeply religious. Every meal was a religious feast in miniature. Every meal involved prayer, and so table fellowship was marked with purity and holiness. Jews could not eat with those who were compromised. One was holy, the other was not. And Jesus ignores this. In fact, he transgresses this, and this enrages the religious leaders that are seeing this. If you can imagine, sort of like an outdoor party. I think of it sort of like a barbecue. I don't know. That's not where my imagination goes. And Everybody starts getting noisy because they're having such a good time, and then everybody has that one neighbor that sort of peers over the fence that comes up and knocks on the door to give you a good finger wave about the commotion. And they say, why are you meeting with these people? And Jesus responds with words that the church frankly has struggled to understand for 2,000 years. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is not saying anything new here. He's quoting the prophet Hosea. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. But notice the sacrifice isn't happening here. It's a meal. He's applying that term to that. It's fellowship, something about its holiness and its purity. And that says something profound to us as a church in our fellowship, as we seek to be pure and holy. Holiness, as any lexicon will tell you, means to be separate. But Jesus fulfills that and redefines it, he shows us true holiness. Jesus' holiness is a mercy so pure, it refuses to stay away from us. We expect God to be up there, out there, away from us. And God shows up and and we learn that God is with us and God is for us. We expect God's grace to be limited because we're limited. Because obviously holiness ought to have limits. How gracious you can be to people who don't hold up their end of the bargain. The God in the Bible just keeps showing up, forgiving and blessing and loving in ways that constantly leave us surprised. You might say that Jesus shows us something completely separate, wholly different than what we expect God to be. And so, quite surprisingly. In our third story, Jesus rolls into Jericho, a city marked with a history of God, orchestrating the death of the enemies of God's people. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus, another tax collector. We all know about Zacchaeus, that wee little man. No, I'm not going to sing the song. We know that Jesus chose to eat with him despite what he did, despite his line of work, despite his reputation. Jesus And Zacchaeus is so humble. So humble that Jesus would do this. He commits to paying back fourfold what he has taken from others, along with half of what he owned. And Jesus announces, today salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. A very similar principle he just posits there. What I want you to notice here is that by eating Zacchaeus, is transformed. I was brought up, taught that if you came to the table and if you had anything in your life, whatever it could be, don't eat or else it might not go well for you. And I was terrified about taking communion. In fact, for years as a young adult, I wouldn't. I was too afraid. Too afraid I was just never good enough. This is why I may be having this sermon with you today. I have to ask I have to ask myself as I read scriptures just like this all those years ago. Is that really the pattern Jesus shows us? Do we fix ourselves in order to come to the table? Or does God invite us to the table and this is where healing happens? Jesus does not wait for Zacchaeus to repent first, to make amends first, to get his life straightened out first. Then it's okay to come and eat with him. Jesus chooses to step into Zacchaeus' life, where he is and as he is, inviting a gangster to eat with the king. And the sheer grace of this is so powerful that he moves to make amends beyond what anybody could imagine. Friends, there's a reason why James says mercy triumphs over judgment. It should not surprise us then when we look at a story like the Last Supper, the passage that institutes communion for the first time. We see Jesus going out of his way in the synoptic tradition to point out that his disciples are not really all that they're cracked up to be. Points out that Judas is there; he's going to betray him. Jesus will desert him. They're sandwiched on either side of the story for good reason. Jesus eats with them anyway. Jesus says to them, "This is my body broken. This is my blood poured out. A new covenant. A new." way of understanding our relationship, poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying something here. God loves us. God loves us with his very body and blood. God loves us to the point of dying for us. If you've ever loved something with your body and blood, he's doing it here with his very self. How much more do you want to show that God will never let us go? We often forget that communion is the gospel in a meal. God eats with us sinners because God is with us. It is also, and we forget this too, the mission of the church in miniature, inviting the hungry and the broken to God's meal. If that was the first Lord's Supper, Jesus eating with unfaithful disciples, committing to saving them despite their sins, this is the very heart of the gospel. It would seem like an odd thing that communion so often is marked by criteria of worthiness reserved for those who meet a certain standard. A religion, a, a ritual for the righteous, rather than a meal for those who hunger and thirst for righteousness they don't have. It. Sarah Miles writes about this. She says the entire contradictory package of Christianity was present at the Eucharist, a sign of unconditional acceptance and forgiveness. It was dulled out and rationed to insiders. A sign of unity it divided people, a sign of our our most common and ordinary human reality, it was rarefied and theorized nearly to death. And yet that meal remained throughout all the centuries, more powerful than any attempts to manage it, to reconcile it, if only for a minute, all of God's creation revealed that without exception, we were members of one body, God's body in endless diversity. The feast showed us how to remember what has been dismembered by human attempts to separate and divide, cast, and judge, select, or punish. At that table, sharing food, we were brought into the ongoing work of making creation whole. It seems that just as how people in Jesus' time would be disrupted with a new kingdom sign, I think we fall into old patterns today. There's an old Jewish story called Bone Button Borsh. Has anybody heard of it? Okay. The story about a mysterious beggar who comes, maybe he's an angel in disguise, we never really told. He comes to a town who's forgotten how to share. The beggar knocks on each door, hoping perhaps somebody would give him a little food or maybe some warmth. Nobody can spare any food. Go away, they all say. Nobody seems to ever have anything. He even came to a synagogue where the caretaker is cold to him, telling him to leave. The beggar, however, promises that he'll work in a miracle and produce the most wonderful soup or Porsche out of just water and old buttons. If only the Shamas or the caretaker musters up enough generosity to just give him an old button. Shamas, out of intrigue, relents, and, but he admits he doesn't have any buttons. So he goes to his neighbor, a tailor, for a spare. The tailor turns to him and says, I don't have any, go away. And he says, No, no, no beggar might work a miracle. And out of entry, the tailor, okay, he says, fine, and gives a button. One, another neighbor overhears, and out of entry donates a pot, just in case they don't have one large enough. Another donates a spoon, who overhears, and the whole town gathers around the beggar, who's now spur, stirring a pot of hot water with just buttons in it. He sips the soup and says, hmm, this is wonderful. You know what would make this a little better? Some potatoes. Eager to taste the miracle, another villager donates some potatoes. Another voluntarily donates cabbage, just in case. Another spices, just in case. Another says, why don't we get some bread to share at this momentous occasion? It's not every day we get to witness a miracle. Still, another decides to break out wine for everybody. Another decides, you know what would go well with a meal? Music. Soon the whole town, who allegedly had nothing to spare, is now feasting in joyous meal around soup and music. After the feast, the beggar says he has to go and the villagers plead with him, give us more buttons so that we can do this ourselves. He says, sure, gives him some buttons and he disappears. And the villagers continue on making soup for everybody until the buttons ran out and they realized they never needed the buttons anyway. There's something about this new pattern that the beggar is trying to cause the town to be inspired with. That Jesus, I think in a similar sense, is trying to stir up the church. Whether we see miracles or not, God has given us enough to do his kingdom work. I used to coordinate a soup kitchen in downtown Toronto during my doctoral studies. Can I just say that experience disrupted me? (laughs) The people would often be the sorts of people that churches didn't want around. And I realized as a church kid, I had a very specific set of prejudices that I associated with people who were poor. As I got to hear some of these stories of awful brokenness, some of them just were outrightly told by churches, stop coming, we don't want you here. And my heart would break on a daily basis. Many didn't know what to believe because they didn't know they could trust anything anymore. And yet, since I was in seminary, and this met in the basement of Wellmore Road Baptist Church, this meal program, the gathering spot, they called this their church. And they called me their pastor. Some of them called me padre, which annoyed me, and I never could tell them how much it did. <laughs> my theology of what pastor is, but whatever. Technically, I was the program room coordinator. And my teammate was an old saintly lady, a Dutch lady named... Marika Grunendijk, <laughs> she was a lady full of spirit. She used to work at a real estate job, but quit her job because she kept being told you could only sell the nice properties to white folk. We need to keep rich neighborhoods rich. And she said to them, that's not the way of Jesus. And she quit. And she looked at the rest for days, caring for those in poverty, but as I realized, she also was on the edge of poverty the rest of her life herself. Ooh, yeah, i just give to you when I think about her. Being a good, uh, being a good Dutch lady, she would penny pinch. Uh, she would ask around for different donations. And with a few bucks and a few donations, she could feed dozens. 30 to 50 people who uh, feed every Tuesday night, and she would sing and pray as she cooked. Some nights the food ran out. Those were really difficult nights. And I remember one particular night, I remember we had more guests than usual, and we looked down at this large soup pot, and there just wasn't a whole lot left, maybe a few scoops. I thought, today's gonna be one of those nights, I'm gonna just feel awful coming home on the bus. And she said, just have faith, and she kept singing and praying and scooping. And I just kept taking my cart, one of those serving carts with always has a wheel that pulls mattingly to the left, taking out soup after soup, and I lost count and I realized we had fed the whole room. How could that be? I remember saying that to Marika, and she just smiled and kept singing in the kitchen. The communion cup we're using today, just as a prop, uh, at the front of the room was the one given to me by a guest at the gathering spot. And there, after meals on occasion, the coordinator, uh, those who modeled how to serve the poor before me, would take bread and drink and invite those in the room who were hungry for more than just bread and thirsty for more than just drink to come and partake with words that might have gone something like this Come to the table. Not because you must, but because you may. Not because you are strong, but because you are weak. Come not because of any goodness of your own gives you the right to come, but because you need mercy and help. Come because you love the Lord a little and would like to love him more. Come because he loves you and he has given himself for you. Come and meet the risen Jesus, for we are his body. Who does Jesus eat with? Jesus eats with the hungry and hurting. Jesus eats with the bad and the broken. Jesus eats with the unworthy and the undeserving. And if we can accept this truth today, Jesus is here to eat with us. Whoever we are, whatever we've done, we are called together to eat, not as faculty, students, not as friends and colleagues even, but as God's family here, brothers and sisters. God invites us all, and so will you come and be your them today. Let's pray. Merciful and holy God, God whose mercy is holy and whose holiness is mercy, God of those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, you come, we come to you today because we're starving. We are here because we are parched in our souls for your love. We come to you feeling like we don't deserve to eat with you. And yet, all we can do is trust that you're the kind of God who who has invited us here. You have chosen to eat with us. God, may eating with you today nourish us. As we eat with each other, may it strengthen us. The journey of being disciples on this broken path so rarely traveled. And as you give us bread... Teach us, God, to share our bread with others. May it strengthen us for the mission of sharing good news and feeding the hungry of this starving world. May it nourish us to the next meal we have with you and with others, wherever that may be and with whomever that may be. God be with us. Amen. I'd like you to take your communion practice. You. Apostle Paul says, Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It also says, in the same way, he took a cup. I'll pause. I don't like these things either, but they're necessary. (laughs) In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. Saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. Paul tells us that whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Amen. It's no coincidence that this chapel is followed by a meal upstairs, a meal open to anyone. Communion does not end when we leave this room. After all, we're uh, going to eat together continually. Called community meal, but the early church might have called it a love feast. Either way, it is a community meal, and we hope that you will come upstairs and join us. Let's thank God for the food and then I'll give the benediction. God, who always gives us enough, God of rich generosity, we thank you for the food we have upstairs. We thank you for the fellowship. that will grace us there. How we can eat with each other. But remind us that you are still in our midst, even if we leave a chapel space. Remind us that your reality is everywhere around us. So, as your children, as your disciples, may we go from here that message of love and peace. Amen. There's a benediction that goes like this. The cross, we will share it. The bread, we will break it. The pain, we shall bear it. Joy, we will share it. The gospel, we shall live it. The love, we will give it. The light, we will cherish it. And one day, the darkness, our God, will perish it. Amen. Go in peace. Thank you for joining us in this Acadia Divinity College Chapel podcast. You can follow us on social media. Discover more on our website at acadiadiv.ca or join us for chapel on a Wednesday.